one of my favorite things is basically debunking the biological <laughs> clock because it's really a sociological clock. Hi, I'm Anna Olson, and you're listening to We're Not Kidding, a podcast devoted to sharing stories surrounding the child-free life. As a life coach, I'm passionate about helping women feel confident and empowered in their choice not to have children. And I believe that by sharing our stories, we help break the stigma. So let's dive in. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm really honored to have today's guest with us. I'm speaking with Teresa Schechter, who is an award-winning filmmaker, public speaker, and the founder of the production company Trixie Films. Her work fuses humor, activism, and personal storytelling to disturb what's considered most sacred about womanhood. Teresa began her two decades long film career as an intern at Robert De Niro's production company, Tribeca Films. And since then, her documentaries have screened on television and at film festivals from Rio de Janeiro to Istanbul to soul. Thank you for being here, Teresa. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. It's truly an honor. So thank you. Oh, thanks. I'm really excited to be here, actually, because I love your stuff. And oh, so do my social media followers. <laughs> so I think it's great. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I know I have had the honor of seeing your latest documentary, My So-Called Selfish Life, which is incredible. Um, I It's been a little bit since I saw it. Um, I believe I viewed it in May when it was available to stream. Yes, it was our Mother's Day weekend premiere That's in right. May. It was so successful. We extended it from 11 days to 18 days, and we got so many nice notes and People made Instagram stories and sent emails. I mean, it was really lovely. It was such a lovely reception for the film. International Child Free Day is coming up August 1st. So I thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to put it out there again for online screenings for the weekend, just to, you know, so everyone can celebrate. And so it's going to be available July 29th, which is a Friday, through August 1st, which is a Monday. And so August 1st is International Child Free Day. So if you go to my website, myselfishlife.com, or if you go to the Instagram bio for my so-called Selfish Life, <laughs> Trixie Films, different places to get it. I'm sure you'll have it like in your notes or something. Absolutely. I will put it in the show notes and I will also be sharing it in my stories on Instagram because listeners, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I'm excited to buy another ticket and watch it again. I think this is a really special opportunity that you're giving us. So thank you for that. It is one of the, I mean, when I watched it, I felt so validated and so seen. And, you know, I've been in preparing for this conversation, reflecting on the documentary and also doing a deep dive into the amazing filmmaker conversations you have on your website that expand the conversation even farther, which is such a gift too. I would highly recommend listeners to go watch those as well. I will also link those in the show notes. But yeah, I was reflecting on how this can be such a difficult conversation to have anything related to the child-free conversation. And there are so many aspects to it, which you have all of these elements in the film in a really beautiful way. And I think that that's hard to do. 
but you did it masterfully and you still were able to incorporate humor and there's the personal touch with your with your mother and yourself in the film and but yeah it goes into obviously I don't want to give too much away for anyone who hasn't seen it but just you have a diverse look at what it means to be child free different people and their experiences and different cultures and what it means as well as getting into reproductive justice and a look through history. How did you conceptualize all of this? Was that your intention from the beginning? No, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sort of. I mean, it was, it was my ambition. I yeah. do really like telling stories where, where like you're sort of holding up a prism to a, a thing and you get to turn the prism around and look at all the different facets and sides of it. And it all sort of weaves together into a sort of a whole. And I think that when we talk about things like choosing whether or not to have children, the pressure that's put on uh, women to become mothers, things like that, this is a really sort of complex and intersectional issue. And it brings yeah. in a lot of different strands in our lives. So this is why I like telling stories that way, you know, bringing in the history, bringing in science or pseudoscience, as the case may be, <laughs> bringing in personal stories, but also bringing in sort of larger themes, political themes and things like that. It's just how I do it. I can't make films really any other way, I think. But it's, it is complicated. And when I first met with my editor, Siobhan Dunn, who uh, is owed so much credit for anything great in the film. When we first met and I was interviewing her to see like if we could work together and things like that. And she had seen my previous film, How to Lose Your Virginity, which looks at virginity and female sexuality in a sort of a similar, um, sort of a similar way, really multifaceted. And she said, so how does that happen? How do all of these things come together? Like, how do you put all of these different ideas into one film and then it all sort of makes sense? And I said, it's magic, <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> and when we were working on it and like sort of sweating through the 300th iteration of it, I'm like, remember when I told you it was magic? <laughs> I lied, it's 300 iterations. <laughs> anyway, thank you. It's, a, it's um, I, I guess I'm a maximalist. I just really like looking at things in a lot of different ways to give people this sort of broader context of what we're talking about. Yeah. I'm really proud of it and pleased with it. One important theme that you bring into the movie, which is the idea of pronatalism. And would you be up for expanding on that for listeners to set the context? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the really important elements of the film that I didn't discuss is that it's entertaining. It's an entertaining film. And I think that when we're talking about fraught, issues like this that make people uncomfortable, they don't want to talk about it. Um, I think giving people humor and entertaining people is a really good way to like trick people into watching the film and, you know, sticking with it, really. So that's really, really important. Not that we don't get deadly serious. This is my preamble for talking about pronatalism because I'm going to go to this <laughs> rabbit hole in a second. So, okay, pronatalism. So it's it's a, a Latin word that translates to for birth, pretty straightforward. And on the most basic level, it is basically suggesting or encouraging or coercing or forcing uh, people to have children. 
so that happens at the level where you're at Thanksgiving dinner and your aunt is saying, when are you going to give your parents grandchildren already? They're dying for grandchildren, right? And you're just like, it's only happened like a thousand times, stop. And so that's pronatalism right there. When folks get money, when they have an extra child, which is a very helpful thing, that's also pronatalism because the government has decided it's worth investing your taxpayer dollars <laughs> in supporting families with children. But it can also be, and this is in the film, but things like when you watch an ad for a pregnancy test and no one is ever happy with a negative result, like nobody. <laughs> it's always like, oh my God, crying and hugging and things like that. And, and you know, my, my gynecologist who's awesome is in the film and I ask her about this and she's like, well, I'm really happy for people when when they find out they're pregnant and they're really happy she's like but a lot of times people don't want to be pregnant <laughs> and they're, you know and they're you know most of the time when they get that negative it's like a sigh of relief but we don't see much of it it's a little bit but not very much so you have to ask like why <laughs> why do we not see happy people who don't have children or don't want children and this goes all the way up to the level of of nations when you hear about fertility rate panic, for example, a dropping fertility rate and, you know, hand-waving around the economy and hand-waving around supporting senior citizens and all of that, that is also pronatalism because there are a lot of reasons for countries to want people to have more babies and not always really good reasons that I would lend my uterus for. <laughs> I you know, more workers, more soldiers, more taxpayers, more people being born in the country as opposed to having immigrants come in. So this is a, it's a very much an anti-immigrant stance here and in many places in the world. Panic over like white people aren't having enough babies. That's also a very much a pronatalist thing. And it's been going on for a very, very long time. And to, to continue even from there, Pronatalism isn't just encouraging people to have babies. It's actually encouraging the right people to have babies. So quote unquote, you know, there are people who you want to have babies and you want to encourage them to have babies for your whatever ends. And then there are people you don't want to have babies. And that gets into a lot of um, white supremacy and racism and you know, kind of crosses and whole tents with the anti-immigration sentiments. And we have a long history in the United States of forced sterilization, which is still going on, by the way. But basically coercing or forcing or kind of tricking people to getting sterilization procedures. And that has been targeted at, you know, black people, people of color, prisoners, uh, poor people. Even women who were accused of being like too sexual, <laughs> there were there were actually camps in the 20s or 30s. I'm not entirely sure, but where women who were picked up, uh, maybe they were sex workers, maybe they were just pregnant and not married, and they would be picked up and, and taken to these camps, and, and many would get sterilized. So it's a really really a goes to dark places, and sometimes it seems innocent, but it's pronatalism is actually something that really affects how we live our lives and what we are told is most important. So this also applies to people who want children and can't have them because you are made to feel like you are useless. You know, if you can't have a child, 
what good are you as a woman? You're not a real woman. You're broken. I mean, all of these terrible things that people are told. And that's part of pronatalism. And even if you do have a child, one child, which is what you chose to do, you know people are going to say, when are you having another? Little Johnny really needs a, a little brother or sister. When are you going to have that second child? It's like, it never stops, really. Right. Um, so I invite people to watch commercials and TV shows and see if they can spot the pronatalism <laughs> because it's there. It's everywhere once you start looking for it. And it's, it's scary. It's really scary. Terrible things have happened because of pronatalism. And yeah. guess what? <laughs> We're on that road again. So that's what I'm going to say about pronatalism. Yeah, it's a really important concept and people don't know the word, you know, so we're really trying to introduce people to this, to this word, because it's not something that comes up a lot in conversation. Right. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I think, yeah, once you start looking, you'll, like you said, you'll see it everywhere. Current events right now here in the States. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was just talking to somebody about this. I was talking to a reporter actually who was doing an article, it just came out about why suddenly everyone wants to be sterilized. Like, oh, that's what it looks like, right? And like the requests for sterilization have gone through the roof. And we were talking about this and I, and I said, you know, women have been asking for sterilizations for decades and decades. This isn't new, this isn't like new. Maybe they're calling again because they really started panicking. But, you know, women have been asking this forever. And I mean, anyone with a uterus, anyone with the potential to get pregnant, you know, many, many people have tried to get it. And it's been very difficult because the doctors say, oh, you'll regret it. You know, you'll want children one day or like my favorite. What if Mr. Wright comes along? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so again, this is so, so baked in. To, to the medical community, right? Because they're just basically working under the assumption that every woman will eventually want children or really should eventually have children. And, you know, they don't want to be part of making sure that never happens. Right. So the good news in that story, though, is that the requests for vasectomies have really skyrocketed, which makes me very happy because, as we know, the guys haven't really been pulling their weight in terms of reproductive health care and contraception. So mm -hmm. that's nice to see. And I hope it's part of a growing trend. Yes. As you were sharing that, I was reminded of in your mom's story. I don't know how much of this is also in the documentary. Um, what's freshest in my mind right now is the filmmaker conversation that you and your mom and Siobhan, the editor, was uh, moderating. This is my dream team, by the way. I hope you all get a chance to, to see that one with the, with the three of us. It's so good. Yes, I hope, I hope people will take time to watch all of them and definitely that one. But that, I guess, in that conversation with the idea of pronatalism that we're discussing here, it really was illustrated the idea of controlling population by criminalizing abortion, I think. And it, oh, yeah. the reason that... It, I found it so interesting was also holding up your mom's story of when she was pregnant with you. She just fled Romania with your dad, if I understood correctly, mm -hmm. and they were in Israel. And she says that had she known and was still in Romania, she would have gotten an abortion because of their circumstance, not living together and abortion was healthcare. But shortly after they had left, it was then criminalized. Right. 
in order to regrow the population. And I thought the timing was interesting because I believe you said that was the 70s, which then think of the U.S. Roe v. Wade happened in 73. And then now here we are today. And it just seeing the fluctuation in abortion rights in different countries over time is interesting. Yeah, the, the, the story of Romania, it's called Decree 770, which is what the communist leader of Romania put forth in the late 60s, I think it started. And he did want to grow the population, the native population. Um, yeah. yeah, so he outlawed abortion and contraception. He made contraception very difficult to wow. get. Um, and families could no longer control if and when they were going to have children or more children. And what happened is, and I think people will be familiar with the story of the Romanian orphans, which were all of these children who were born to families who couldn't take care of them. And they went into quote unquote orphanages to be cared for there, but there were so many of them and they had horrible lives and horrible conditions. And it's an entire traumatized generation of people who are now adults because this was going on through the seventies and the eighties. Wow. It was a huge human rights crisis, not to mention women still tried to get abortions because they will always try to get abortions. And, you know, so many died from illegal abortions. It was, a, it was a total human tragedy. And when Margaret Atwood was writing The Handmaid's Tale, you know, she famously says that there's nothing in that book that hasn't happened already somewhere. Ooh. And she, I'm getting goosebumps telling you this. She, so she said that she was very influenced by the story of Nicolae Ceausescu and Romania and that whole story where um, reproduction was very tightly controlled by the by the government. And that was a big inspiration for her for writing The Handmaid's Tale. Wow. Very sad. And we're, we're moving in that direction in several countries in Europe now. So it's just, it's going to happen again, Hungary in particular. Something interesting also to bring to this conversation is the fact that abortions, contraception, they have been around for hundreds of years, thousands of years, centuries, like they aren't new to when they started having laws around them. Right like here in the US in the eight, late 1800s, these doctors came together and essentially, from what I understand, took over what midwives and sort of that passed down woman to woman or practitioner practitioner um, knowledge was. Right. And this has happened in, in many ways where, you know, historically there were midwives or wise women or medicine women, you know, people who knew how to use herbs and other things to do many things, but one of those things was to either prevent a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy because women have always wanted to control their own reproduction. Always. Since, since someone could get pregnant, they have wanted to decide if, when, and where that was going to happen. And as the profession of doctors, which is a male, totally male profession, rose up, they basically got rid of the midwives because they didn't want the competition. And not only did they like sort of push midwives out, but, you know, these women were also punished. Uh, the, the witch hunts and worse in Europe and in America were in part going after the women who knew how to use herbs because, you know, they're messing with the status quo. Again, it's like if you can't control your reproduction, you can't control your life, which is the point. <laughs> so right. Controlling your reproductive life is a form of of control that is for yourself 
and vital, you know, to, to allowing yourself to figure out what your future will look like. Um, right. You don't have that control. If you can't control your future, someone else will control it for you. Which actually, this reminds me of this hilarious and horrible thing that Amy Coney Barrett said uh, when she was talking about the Supreme Court you know, decision. It's so chilling. Like the whole decision is really chilling, but she's talking about how like, it's okay. You know, we, it's, it's much better now. You can, you can be a mother. You can also work. Uh, you can get maternity leave. If you get pregnant, you know, you can leave your baby, no questions asked to be adopted by someone. It's fine. Like there are all sorts of things you can do. And, and like, it completely leaps over the fact that some women never want to be pregnant. Pregnancy is dangerous, much more dangerous than an abortion. Childbirth is incredibly dangerous, especially for Black women right now. And they just leap right over that. You know, that's just not even in the conversation. Like, there's just, oh, you'll get pregnant and then, you know, it's fine. There are all these things set up to take care of you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know... If all of these very um, caring, ultra conservative <laughs> Supreme Court justices, anti-choice people, if they all really cared so much, they would have already put in good, you know, prenatal, neonatal, <laughs> like children's programs. Like they don't exist because they don't want to spend money on it, and nothing's going to change. Like they didn't care yesterday, and they don't care tomorrow. So that's yes, that's exactly the other part of it. Like this. Like, this is not a great place to have kids in, in various ways, especially if you're not a, like, middle-class, upper-class white person. Right, right. And I think your documentary highlights how, speaking of pronatalism, speaking of white supremacy, forced sterilizations, I learned in watching your work that even those, you know, I'm a white cis heterosexual woman. So being child-free for me is not the same as someone who has a different, coming from a different culture, coming from a different race, um, who's had oppression, different oppressions, like all these factors play into it. And I can't remember who it is, but they make the point that there are some great you know, and I've shared them myself. There are some resources, some lists of doctors, like who you can seek out for a tubal ligation who won't give you pushback. And yet the point that if it's not a culturally aware doctor, they may not be a safe person to go to for someone who's not white. I mean, it really, I mean, there are a lot of things that are less safe people who aren't white in this country yeah. historically and currently. Dr. Kimia Dennis, who's in the film, who's black and uh, she's quite brilliant. She's teaching a class in the film, actually. We see her talking with her students. Um, but she, she talks about getting a lot of grief from her black community about getting sterilized um, because she's had a sterilization procedure and, and she's, you know, her community was basically accusing her of not understanding her history meaning that with a long history of forced sterilization of black people, how could she, I don't know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but sort of betray her history and community by doing it herself, basically. And she's like, I understand my history. I also don't want children, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's the kind of thing that I think, sometimes I think that the child-free community and world is very white 
I don't think it's really very white, but it looks very white because yes. a lot of mainstream, like white stuff always gets pushed to the surface. And, um, and I thought it was pretty important to have black voices in the film to talk about their own situations. And there's a lot of different situations. I'm trying to think, um, Angela, bibs, burps and bottles. Yeah. Is that it? Okay, yeah. so Angela, Angela, who runs that, Doc Syrah, is amazing. And, and she and I have collaborated on a couple of things. And I remember she was part of a panel we did, not part of the this recent thing, but for another event that we did. And she talks about how, you know, and when enslaved women were forced to have children, especially after the transatlantic slave trade was, was abolished. So slave owners needed to increase their property by having their enslaved women have babies, forced to have babies. And you know, she's like, that my ancestors were forced to bear children and no one is going to force me to bear a child if I don't want one. It was a really uh, moving, you know, her, wow. her, her sort of statement during this panel. Um, and again, this is the kind of thing that is specific to um, certain histories, certain groups with histories. It's not my history. I have other yeah. disturbing histories, but not that one. And I, and I think we need to be hearing this over and over again, that every group brings their own histories to it, their own experiences. And we can't have a full picture of what this conversation looks like unless, you know, everyone can come to the table and tell their stories. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that so well. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going back to pronatalism just briefly, I was curious to get your take on this. Molly Peacock shares in one of your filmmaker um, conversations that she believes pronatalism moves in waves and mm -hmm. that right now we're in a dip. And I was curious if your understanding of that, or if you want to have anything to say to that. Well, first of all, Molly Peacock's amazing. She wrote a memoir called um, Paradise Piece by Piece, which is about her own life and the many, many times since she was a kid that she decided she didn't want any children. Mm -hmm. And she's a poet. So her writing is really beautiful. And it's the first memoir I read about a child-free life. And so she's in the film. She's great. You know, she's older than me and she wrote this book in the nineties. So she's been able to watch things ebb and flow um, in a way that I, you know, haven't been tuned in for that, for that long. I just started working on this film in the mid 2010s. Um, yeah. And I think what she was responding to was this idea that the conversation, you know, bubbles up and then it gets pushed down, bubbles up, gets pushed down. Like a lot of social movements, really, yeah. um, we see the same thing with feminism. And the, the child-free movement or community really coalesced in the early 70s. And that's, there's no, <laughs> it's not like a coincidence that that's when birth control pills became available for married and single people in the US and abortion became legal, right? And suddenly when you have the ability uh, to control your fertility in a fairly safe and reliable way, you can start having those conversations. And that was really when it, when it first kind of bubbled up and then it gets pushed down. Um, the eighties were super conservative. We had family values and the moral majority and Reagan and Phyllis Schlafly, <laughs> all those awful people. Um, 
And, and so it kind of went underground. It never went away, but these things go underground because they get pushed underground. And I think the 90s was another sort of blossoming of that conversation. And that's when um, Molly wrote her book. And there was a lot of work done in the 90s. And then it kind of went underground a little again, you know? So yeah, it ebbs and flows. I think the advent of social media helped it, you know, bubble up again because people could just meet on their own terms. Yeah. Um, and, and create their own communities and find each other. I think that's been a real help in, you know, people, people who've seen the film say, you know, thank you for making me feel less alone a lot. And, you know, that's what happens to us when we're doing things that the powers that be don't want us to do, where it's isolated, we get isolated. So we think we're the only person and we're weird and we can't talk about it. And this doesn't just apply to not wanting kids, obviously. And once you start making the connections and you become less isolated and you, you are validated by others, it's really powerful. I think it gives us all power to know that, no, we're not weird and we're not crazy. And there are a bunch of other people who feel just like I do. And this community is very vast and it's very diverse and varied and People have different ideas about what the word child-free means, for example. <laughs> like, right. Like, <laughs> arguments can go on for weeks. Um, <laughs> however, we are still united by this idea that, you know, we're not sure if we want to be parents or we know we don't want to be parents or we want to be parents, but we can't be. And we're sort of getting the same kind of prejudice and pressure as people who know that they don't want kids. So. There are a lot of shared things. And once you realize that there are a lot of people around you to feel the same way, you know, you can hopefully start making change. Yeah. And I think that what's happened now with Roe v. Wade has only intensified those feelings. Yeah. Thank you for making a film that does. I know for me watching it, I... I'm fortunate to have already connected with other people who feel the same way, but it was still just... I can't really express it. It was, I've never watched something and felt moved the way I did watching that and validated and seen. And it was, I think a sense of pride that there is this beautiful documentary out there that holds us up while tackling all the complex components of the child-free discussion. So thank you. I just want to say thank you. Oh, well, You're welcome and thank you. I think there are a lot of people doing really wonderful things to to hold people up and validate them, including you, Coach Anna. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, No, but there are a lot of people doing this and I think it's really important. And I I feel really good about the film. I'm really proud of it. And I'm proud to be in community with other people who are using different media, but are also trying to do that work. You know, it's really important. And like once a week, somebody emails me or comments on social media. Like, I didn't know there were all these people out there that felt like I did. You know, and this is a really important thing for me to understand because I've been working in this. I'll say whatever I want. I don't care. Like, I'm not particularly shy (laughs) on this topic. (laughs) And I have to keep reminding myself that there are people who just yesterday discovered that there were people who felt like they did. And there's even like a hashtag for it, you know. And, and it, in truth, when I was in my 20s and 30s, which coincides with the 80s and 90s, I was pretty confused. Like I was, I was pretty confused. Like I knew I didn't want children. 
that wasn't really something I was grappling with. That that was something I was pretty sure about, but I, I didn't think I would get away with it. <laughs> you know, I didn't think that that would happen. I, I assumed that, you know, in order to find a husband, a partner, they would want kids and I would have to have them. And mm-hmm. at that time, it seemed to me that like, I did want a relationship and I did want, you know, that. And it made me very unhappy and confused that that was going to happen. And I was always thinking about like, what do I want to get done now before, you know, my life basically is entirely given over to childcare or something. Right. Uh, you know, so I was like doing this checklist thing and I really didn't have the language to talk about it. There was a part of me that didn't consider there was an option and through, I, you might want to call it good luck, but I didn't end up getting with any husband. <laughs> you know, I had a pretty serious relationship in my thirties, but it, it, it ended for various reasons, not because we ever really had like a fight about having children or not. And I was really sad that it ended. And then by the time I turned 40, I was just like, why are you sad? This is exactly what you wanted. This is exactly <laughs> the life that you wanted you are single, you have a great job, you live in a cool city, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, You don't have children, you never wanted children. Remember how you didn't want children? Well, you don't have any now. So (laughs) congratulations. And it was really, it, it was the first time I kind of came out of the fog of that part of our lives where all of our friends are having children everyone seems to be advancing in their lives, you know, and you're kind of by that metric or not. And uh, it's tough. I mean, I, I get it. You know, I get why people make certain choices that maybe if they really sort of think about it, maybe weren't the best choices for them, but it seemed like the choice they had to make. And, uh, you know, we talk about the biological clock in the film. Yes which is one of my favorite things is basically like debunking (laughs) the biological (laughs) clock because it's really a sociological clock. You know, I think that quote unquote baby panic, you know, comes from looking around and seeing what all of your friends are doing. And if all of your friends are like all getting married and all having children, you become kind of an alien in your own friends group and you no longer can share experiences because they're going through these like really intense and powerful experiences and you're not really part of that and you may not want to be part of that you know but yeah it's very hard when friends that you love are moving in a different direction than you are and you have to just kind of like go okay that's that's how life is but yeah it's it's confusing it's difficult yeah I have a lot of um, empathy for people who are ambivalent, trying to figure out what to do. I think we all need time in a quiet room to really like think about what makes us happy and what we want without all the noise that never shuts up. So it's challenging. Yeah. I'm, I'm 60 now. So I'm like way past caring about any of that stuff. I'm like so happily ensconced in menopause at this point <laughs> that, um, you know, I'm, it's very different for me, but I, I do always want people to know that I went through my quote unquote childbearing years, um, you know, somewhat confused and, you know, came through. Okay. In the end. Yeah. I think that's a really important point too. Even when you do know that this is right for you, there still are challenges. And I put out a question in my Instagram stories last week. It was asking what people find to be the most challenging aspect. And I think the 
the most common answer was what happens in friendships when friends go on to have children and just like how that plays out in different ways can be hard. Yeah. What do you say? How do you, how do you talk about that? I think it does come down to having vulnerable conversations and, and creating frameworks for those, because I don't think they're the norm um, necessarily. Right. Right. We're not used to having those conversations. No, but I also think that uh, sometimes friendships ebb and flow. And so maybe it's a good time to let it ebb or flow, whichever. And, and I, I've also found and heard from others that as they become more confident in their child-free life, they begin to find child-free friends as well. But I think there's a component of grief too, if those friendships don't continue. Yeah, it's, it is tough. I, I realized that in my own like life, I, I grew up in Toronto, in Canada, and I spent my 20s in Toronto. And my friends group, you know, from high school, basically, um, you know, all they started getting married and having kids and that kind of thing. And then just before I turned 30, I moved to Chicago and I spent my 30s in Chicago. And slowly, many of my friends started getting married and having kids, like in their 30s instead of in their 20s. But they, you know, right. they did. And then just before I turned 40, I moved to New York. And when I got to New York in my 40s, either there were people who didn't have kids who weren't going to have kids for whatever reason, or there were people who had had kids ages ago and their kids were kind of grown up, you know, they were like in college or whatever. And so I was able to find friends in New York that either didn't have kids or their kids were old enough that they weren't, we weren't having playdates and things like that. And then some of my friends, I did meet people who, who did have kids while I was friends with them. But yeah, you sort of find the groups. I've always lived in big cities. I don't know if it's easier in a big mm -hmm. city, maybe, but that's been helpful for me. Those people that got married and had kids in their 20s, I'm still friends with several of them and their kids are getting married now. <laughs> yeah. Like I, we're, I'm going to like a, a wedding in October, you know? So it's really, it's really interesting how they're like in a whole new phase. And some of my friends are grandparents now, which <laughs> completely, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of interesting and it's a different relationship, you know? And I still don't feel like, oh, I wish I had grandkids or whatever. Like this is just really not happening. Sometimes I meet a really cool teenager and I'm like, oh, it'd be cool to have kids that were like really cool teenagers, but I wouldn't want to do anything that led up to that, you know, right. like, sort of full grown, cool teenager. But even that, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going back to your film, were there any aspects of, of making the documentary that surprised you or you didn't expect through the process? Oh, well, yeah. And actually that brings me back to my favorite biological clock, which is that the biological clock was, the concept was basically created by this guy, this journalist who wrote an article about the women he knew getting baby fever. And he says right up front that, that this is like a composite woman that he's talking about. Like, it's not even a real person. Like he's taken different uh -huh. experiences and personality traits and things. So it's, it's like this, composite composite woman who doesn't actually herself exist and he writes about this whole thing about like you know someone getting baby fever having lunch with someone who's like I have to have a baby I need a baby he writes things like 
maybe there's a man in the picture or horribly there isn't one, you know, and things like that. It's, mm. it's amazing. It's so, you can find it. You can Google it. It's really easy to find. So the clock is ticking for the career woman. Anyway, it was written in the 70s. No scientific basis whatsoever. And it kind of sparked because of what was going on in society, which was the feminist movement was like rolling along. I think it's from 78. A lot of women were entering the workforce. A lot of women had reliable contraception and legal abortion, which means a lot of women were like, you know what, maybe I'm going to put off having kids or I'm just not going to have kids. Given the ability to make that decision, I will, basically. So it's not surprising that something like that turned up and, you know, people who were very disturbed by what was going on with the ladies having all of this, you know, control over their lives, uh, you know, it blew up it became a thing. And to this day, it's a thing and people talk about it. And one of the experts in our film is another OBGYN, Dr. Kristen Brandy, who's amazing. And she basically says, there's no scientific basis for this. It's really about what your friends are doing. You know, like it's a sociological clock. Right. And so now I always like scream, it's a sociological clock, <laughs> it's a biological <laughs> clock. Like we have biological systems in our bodies, you know, and everything is regulated on these clocks and, and time frames, but that's not a thing. <laughs> so of course it was invented by a man in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, I think there are moments where ideas like this are embraced because it serves someone or something. Yeah. And as we're heading into the eighties, which became an incredibly conservative time that you know, let's, let's remind these ladies that, you know, the clock is ticking and they need to have those kids and stop with this. I want to be a career gal kind of thing. We got to, we got to, you know, change it up. So that was really surprising. I remember thinking, oh, my biological clock never went off. Like I've never felt it. I must be weird because it didn't go off. And it's like, oh, it's not real. That's why. Yeah. That's why I, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I remember thinking the same thing. Yeah, I thought I was broken. Thought my clock was broken. And how did that make you feel? Uh, like I was defective. <laughs> like I wasn't a real woman, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. but, yeah. We're like swimming in this. We're like the fish who don't know what water is, you know? Yeah. We're just swimming in all of this. And it's all stuff that we've learned our whole lives in various ways and sometimes very subtle ways. And like part of you kind of knows that there's something wrong about it like it doesn't really fully make sense right right and yet it's so pervasive that you have to question your own feelings and health and mental health and sanity and whatever so you're like oh this is weird because I can't turn on the tv and see myself anywhere I guess I don't exist yes or if I do exist that person is actually like really miserable and neurotic. And I don't feel miserable and neurotic. I feel fine. Right. So, so why is that? There's such a disconnect. It's still hard to find good role models, actually, I think, in media. There's, there's more, but it's still kind of hard. My God, the other thing that surprised me was I knew I wanted to do something on Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. Poor Jen. <laughs> Like all the you know, magazine covers, like Jen is having twins with Brad Pitt or whatever, like it's endless. And I remember we had a really wonderful intern working with us. And I said, let's see how 
many magazine covers she's been on that somebody has said something about baby, you know, baby coming or baby tragedy or, you know, whatever. It was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Like it seemed like bottomless, honestly. So she actually did an animation for us with the covers, Melissa. Um, Yeah. With some of the covers, but we didn't use all the covers because there were so many. And when you look at the magnitude of press ink (laughs) (laughs) on Jennifer Aniston's uterus, not on her like acting and her films and everything else she does, but like her empty uterus, (laughs) it's amazing. I, I don't feel sad for her. She's a really rich, gorgeous person. And she has been pretty outspoken about like, it's none of your business what anyone does with their uterus, which I appreciate. And she's never, ever said that she didn't want kids. Like, that's the other thing. Like, she's never said that. Mm. We don't know what she wanted and didn't want, which again, it's her business. It's fine. But she's very like canny about things like that. So yeah. all the child-free people that have brought her on as their patron saint, just know that she has never been on the record as being child-free and not wanting kids. But anyway, that was like really surprising. Those were like sort of little things. Like when you do research and you realize, oh my God, this Jennifer Aniston stuff is crazy. We have to put it in the film. That's kind of how the film sort of evolves because you're, you're constantly researching and you're constantly finding new stuff that's really interesting and some of it fits and you know some of it doesn't and you have to leave it but I think that kind of stuff has been really interesting and just hearing people's stories you know like hearing the diversity of people's stories and and realizing that this is like really a spectrum it's not a black and white issue and we move along the spectrum back and forth sometimes and this is why when people are arguing about who's allowed to call themselves child-free, I just kind of lose my mind. <laughs> it's like, don't you have something better to do than like gatekeep? I mean, come on. I don't know right. why. I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's partly like, I'm not surprised that people feel like it's a precarious place being child-free. Mm. And so you want to be very specific about who can be in that place, but it's like, <laughs> I'm vegetarian. And when somebody says they're vegetarian and then they order fish, I'm like, you're not vegetarian if you eat fish. <laughs> and it makes me, it, it makes me upset because now someone's going to have a dinner party knowing I'm vegetarian and make me fish, you know? And it's like, come on, <laughs> stick to the brand, you know? Right. If you're eating fish. You're not a vegetarian. I, I know you want to call yourself one, but you're not. <laughs> I don't know if that's part of it. It's like, I don't know. But like, if you were child free, and then at some point in your life, which you're allowed to do, you decide, you know, I've met this person, and I feel like we can have kids together, and they want kids, and they're going to take a lot of the childcare (laughs) duties and whatever, you know, and, and then you have a kid. I think you're allowed to say that in your 20s, you were child free. I think you can say that. Like, I don't think that's right. And yet there's a lot of um, shade on that. Yeah. Right, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. It drives me absolutely crazy. <laughs> really does. No, I think it's, it drives me a little bonkers too. I feel like there's enough stigma already. We don't need to add to it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I think it's part of the you'll change your mind thing, you know, where we all bristle when someone says you'll change your mind. Like, we're not going to change our minds. And, you know, the doctors say you'll change your mind. So everybody that does actually change their mind, you know, hurts the brand. (laughs) 
So right. I get that, right? But on a different level, it's like we're human, complicated people, and some people do change their minds. They do. They just do. So yeah. we're going to have to work around that and just accept that that's a thing that's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. What do you see as the future of the child-free movement? I think, I mean, in my mind, I would like it to become a real movement, actually. Mm. There's some debate on whether it's a movement or not. You know, are we actually like organized in any way that could be called a movement or, or are we a community? It's fine to just be a community. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to be a movement because I think that there are specific issues that affect people without children. Whether people want children or not, there are specific issues. And there are a lot of workplace issues that have come up, you know, through the pandemic and the reality that people without children are asked to work more. They get crappier holiday time choices. Um, they have to pick up slack for other people. And there's a good reason why parents need time off to do this, this, and this. It should be equitable and everyone should get that time off. And managers don't want to deal with it and they leave it to their employees to fight it out, which is like never a good thing. So I think that's, that's a big issue. I've been working a little bit with the new Legacy Institute, which is, um, I don't know, I guess I'm going to call it a think tank, <laughs> policy think tank. Yeah, um, which was founded by Christine Erickson. And it's in its early days. But when I met her, I was like, oh, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you to come. I'm so excited because she wants to talk policy. You know, mm -hmm. like how, how do people without kids fit into policy? There's a lot of like government stuff. There's a lot of tax stuff. There are a lot of ways that there aren't, people aren't treated equitably. The whole reproductive justice movement, like, why isn't sterilization part of the conversation about contraception? Like, why is it some other thing? It's part of reproductive health care. Why don't we just say it is? Because <laughs> it is. It's permanent contraception. Yes. Things like that. So there's a lot out there that needs to be looked at, needs research, needs studies, needs to be done in a very, like, not just like, by like putting up funny memes about it, which we all do, <laughs> um, you know, like not, not that, like we have to write policy papers and things like that to, to move this thing forward. So I think that's the future. I think the future is recognizing that there are common goals between everyone who doesn't have children and the way that, that we are treated in various aspects of our society. And in the conversation about climate change, you know, can we have a thoughtful conversation about population that doesn't roll into, oh, nobody should be having kids, parents are evil, they're destroying the world, right? Like, we don't want that. I don't, okay, I don't want that conversation. But how can we have a thoughtful conversation about how reproductive justice affects world population? You know, and if everyone had the tools and if everyone had the okay, stigma-less, you know, thing, I think the population would go down honestly, if, if we could just control it and not be stigmatized for it. It's my theory based on no research, but I feel like people are, are overall would like to have less children and would like to have more control over that. Population Balance, um, which is run by Nandita Bajaj, who's pretty prominent in the conversations around child-free and, and reproductive justice, and she's great. And she and I have done work together also I think she's super articulate on this subject and why reproductive justice is the answer to population issues, you know, not other sterner measures. So yeah, 
this is what I hope the future is. I hope the future is translating this into actual policy change and possibly people can learn from people without children in various ways. Yeah, yeah. I hope so I too. Yeah. Oh, and I also see my film being used in a lot of schools and nonprofits and corporations and doing speaking engagements and all of that. That's yes. <laughs> that in my present and future also, because um, that's my favorite thing to do, honestly. It's my reward for, <laughs> for making the film. So I'm really looking forward to that kind of outreach and especially like speaking to college students and being on curricula and, you know, all of that stuff, which my previous films um, have been. So I'd like this film to follow in that, those footsteps. Yeah. What's next for you? I Taking this film, having more screenings, what do you see coming up for you? So we are selling my, I have an educational distributor, Good Docs, and they're selling to schools. They're selling to nonprofits, conferences, libraries, things like that. And also in part organizing speaking engagements, which I also do on my end and trying to get the film into as many educational uh, situations as possible, you know, and as a way for discussing reproductive justice, you know, because this film, like you can see what it would mean to have full reproductive autonomy watching this film. Like, here's what it looks like. And isn't it joyous and wonderful? So that that's going on right now. And I hope it grows, but that that'll be in the future television broadcast starting to work with international distribution on that. And I'm going to be uh, launching uh, screening packages for small groups. So you and I have talked about this. Yeah. So, yeah. So if a small group wants to screen the film or they want to screen the film and, and bring me in, you know, via Zoom or something to, to talk, I'm going to be launching some packages for that, which are going to be less expensive than if you're a university or like whatever, because that's the only option right now. So that's coming too. And I do, I do hope that that's something that people uh, are interested in, because I know there are a lot of different discussion groups out there and I think it could be, could be fun and cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So lots of things, lots of different ways to see the film. And I'm hoping lots of different ways to use the film to talk about these issues that I really care about. It's been interesting because I've had some corporations reach out to me, the employee groups within the corporations, like the women's group and the African American. Oh, yeah. And I think it's too controversial <laughs> for corporate America, which is kind of interesting. Wow. That is. Yeah. I think huh. in light of Roe, actually. Right. Because, you know, we have a point of view and it's a little controversial to have a point of view. Oh, and sort of fascinating. Yeah. And as you said at the beginning, the dates for all the listeners, if they want to get a ticket and view it from their home laptops or wherever. (laughs) Yeah. The comfort of their homes, Um, maybe with, with one of their parents or their kids, because I think this is a great film to foster some conversations or with your best friend who just had a baby you know like this is a way to really connect across generations or life choices or things like that so July 29th to August 1st so that's a Friday Saturday Sunday Monday so it's four days this is in my New York time zone so I want to say yes it's available globally 
And yes, if you live in Australia, you have to go to the page where you can get a ticket and it will say specifically what that translates to in Australian time zones. Oh, like sure. It's available for the same amount of time, but it may not start on the 29th. It may start on the right. 28th or the 30th. I'm not sure. Time zones are plenty that way. Yes. So yeah, so it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really glad that we can get the film out to actually a new group of people who hadn't heard about it until after our thing was over. And so awesome. And thank you again. This, this was really just because I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we could do this on child free weekend? Yeah, it's concurrent. I want to plug the child free convention, which is Saturday and Sunday of that weekend. And it's two full days of panels from all over the world. Last year was awesome. I really, really recommend checking that out. It's running concurrently with our thing and they're great people. And it's going to be a great event. So it's the child free convention. Awesome. It's going to be a good weekend. It's going to be a good weekend. (laughs) As we wrap up, do you have any advice or encouragement to leave with the listeners? You know, I think that, uh, you know, we have one life and um, it's short. And I think we owe it to ourselves to, to take some, serious time to think about what we want from that life and what really makes us happy and shut out all the noise so we can just think about ourselves. I think we all owe that to ourselves instead of just kind of like walking a path that somebody has paved for you and hoping it all works out, you know, so, so really take some time and think about it and um, whatever you decide, it'll be a good decision. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time and for this conversation and for your work. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> oh, my I'm absolute pleasure. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thanks. They're like little hearts coming out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Like they're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. I'll catch you next time. Hey, don't go yet. I have something really exciting to share with you. I created a community for child-free people. That's right, a place for us all to hang out, get to know each other, and become friends. So if you could use some more child-free friends in your life, please come hang out with us. It's like we have our own private social media network. Inside the club, we have weekly virtual meetups via Zoom. We have a community feed with ongoing posts and discussions so we can continue our friendship outside of our virtual meetups. And down the road, we're going to have in-person meetups and take these relationships offline and in-person. So if you want in, head to wnk-club.com. That's wnk as in we're not kidding, dash C-L-U-B dot com. I can't wait to see you in the club.